Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So that's 2 Samuel, chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here, even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, The blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ebhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, The Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle round behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, Move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. 
So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. The second of tonight's readings is taken from Revelation chapter 21. It's reading verses 1 to 5. Uh, That can be found on page 1249 of the Bibles. So Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Good evening and a very warm welcome to Forward. David, thank you for reading through that uh, long reading so well with all those names. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Uh, You join us as we continue through a series in 2 Samuel, uh, looking at uh, the ancient King David, who helps us to understand our true King, Jesus Christ. So do turn back, if you can, in the Bibles to page uh, 308 in the Pew Bibles. And you'll find also in the back of the blue service sheet, we've managed to cram in a sermon outline, which you might find helpful to have to hand over the next few moments. Well, as we turn to God's word together, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, you are a God who uh, lasts forever. Your strength is never exhausted And we thank you that you love to help the weak. And so tonight in our weakness, we pray for your strength. Uh, Please help us to understand your word. And more than that, we ask for the mighty work of your spirit in us to be changed by what we see. Help us to live for you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Christians are a people who believe that the best is yet to come. Don't get me wrong, there are many blessings now in this life. Uh, Daily provisions, the joy of a sunny bank holiday weekend, um, the joy of sins forgiven, God's gift of his Holy Spirit living in us. There are many blessings now in this life, and yet for the Christian, uh, the focal point of our hope and our joy is in what is to come. We heard about it in Revelation 21. There is a day when a real, physical, touchable city will come to us out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. It will be a real city where there are no more tears, no more mourning, no more pain, no more strife. And in that city, we we will really see with our eyes the true King, Jesus Christ, sat on his throne, the Lamb who was slain, And there will be a day 
It will happen when we gather with the multitudes from every nation and we worship in front of that throne. And so for the Christian, the best is yet to come. And because we believe that that truth, it changes everything about how we view the brief moments of this life. It means that we can be generous with our money because we know about the prize to come. It means uh, we don't need to live for momentary pleasures and comforts, knowing the joy that lies ahead. It means that we make serving King Jesus our absolute priority in this life because we know that one day we will stand before him and we will see his face. It all sounds so simple, and yet it is so very hard to go on believing that the best is yet to come. Maybe it is delay. We've waited so long for that best to come to us, but as year after year goes by, we see no change. And so the thought of a new creation, a world put right, just seems like it'll never come to us because of the passing years. Or maybe it's the difficulties of this life, the troubles, trials, and tears, the exam revision, the job interviews, the disappointments and anxieties, the tiredness and poor health of living in this fallen world. These things come to us, and it's so hard to imagine a world differently, not broken, like this difficult current world. Delay, difficulties, or maybe it's death. For each of us here tonight, at some point, the reality of death will come crashing into our lives. And in those moments, it is very hard to believe in the best that is yet to come. Death, the last great enemy. And so because of delay, difficulties, or even death, many Christians that I know hedge their bets, half-heartedly believing that yes, the best is to come, But just in case it isn't, they also try to make this life in the present as good as they possibly can. Just in case. And I think that is why 2 Samuel chapter 5 is in the Bible. Because we aren't the first people to struggle to believe the best is yet to come. And as we look back to these ancient events, we're going to see that when God's king sits on the throne... God's promised best that we long for will become a reality. Verse three from 2 Samuel 5 sets the scene for us. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. The civil war that we looked at last week has come to an end. The country is now united in their decision to make David their king. He is now king over the whole country. And the rest of 2 Samuel 5 describes the first two things the new king does. And as we watch him secure a city and defeat his enemies, these are events that are a foretaste of what King Jesus will do for his people And so this chapter is here to give us incredible confidence 
about what lies ahead of us living under King Jesus. Let's dive in. Uh, What is life like under the new king? Well, our first heading is this. God's king secures his city. Verse six. The king, that is David, and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. So far in the Bible, Jerusalem has hardly been mentioned at all. Indeed, in verse 7, that's the first mention of, of Zion at all in the Bible. But all that changes right here. The importance of Jerusalem back then was that it was a city occupied by the Jebusites. And this was a real problem because 800 years prior to 2 Samuel 5, God had made a promise to Abraham that one day he would give to his people a land, including the land of the Jebusites. But 800 years on, after Genesis 15 when the promise was made, yet the Jebusites still remain in their city and no one can conquer them. There had been a partial um, victory in Judges 1, but only a partial one. And so imagine I made a promise to my wife, Lorna, that um, I would empty the bin in the kitchen. Uh, But then imagine the next day the bin was still full. And then imagine that uh, the day after and the day after and the day after, as the rubbish sort of piles up in the bin and then around the bin, as Lorna walks by in the kitchen every day and sees what's happening to the bin, Uh, Well, she would be wondering lots of things, wouldn't she? But she might be starting to wonder if I had any plans to keep my promises. Indeed, the the bin was a very visual reminder that so far I hadn't kept my promise to take the, the rubbish out. And that is the problem here in 2 Samuel 5. Just imagine being an Israelite living under the shadow of Jerusalem. at The stronghold of Zion, referred to in verse 7, was high up on a ridge, It was flanked on three sides by deep valleys. It was a mighty fortress. There was a reason why it hadn't been defeated for 800 years. And it was not a tourist destination. It is occupied by the enemies of God's people who want to kill them. And so every day as you head out to farm your fields in the shadow of Jerusalem, you have to walk by a very visual reminder that Up until now, God had not yet kept his promise to give the land to his people. Not as long as Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jebusites. Indeed, look at the the smugness of the Jebusites. Verse 6, they said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. And they have a point. The most devastating taunts or the ones that carry a degree of truth. And so here is real delay for the people of God, 800 years of waiting. And here is real difficulty, an unbeatable enemy right on your doorstep, taunting you. And so here are real reasons to doubt God's promises about a better future. But then, in just a in the most matter-of-fact sort of way. Look at verse seven. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, the city of David. 
Uh, we're not uh, quite uh, told how David pulled off this uh, amazing victory. Our translation reckons he used a water shaft. Uh, the footnote in the Pew Bibles uh, says that it might have been um, uh, some sort of scaling hooks. We can't be sure. But what matters is not how David won, but that he won. A most extraordinary victory. And such was the scale of his victory. They made a saying about it in verse 8. Uh, the saying, the blind and lame will not enter the palace. Now this isn't discrimination against blind or lame people. Indeed in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we'll see David welcoming into his table a, blind, uh, a lame person. Now what's going on here in verse 8 is simply a, a play on words. He's using the arrogant slogan of the Jebusites against them. They mocked David with those words, and now those who mocked him, his enemies, will never be allowed into the house of the king, into his palace. Here then is a great reversal. The once defiant city has been defeated. The once small and insignificant king is now uh, sat upon a large and growing throne. He has a capital city. Indeed, verse 10, his power is increasing as the Lord helps him. And so even rich Hiram, king of Tyre, comes to honor David with a gift of materials to build a house for him. God's king secures his city. And for the people back then, the conquest of Jerusalem meant that God had kept his promise. Even after delay and difficulty, the land was theirs, at least in that area. And verse 12 gives us a wonderful summary of this moment. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. See, this uh, moment wasn't just about David um, occupying a, an impressive position. His reign was for the sake of the people. Here is a picture of how the world should be. A world put right where God's king is in charge, sat on his throne in his capital city, and it's all for the good of his people as they live under him and are blessed. It's a great story. But what does it mean for us sitting here 3,000 years later? Well, the careers of Zion and Jerusalem as places that matter, those careers get launched here in 2 Samuel 5, and in the rest of the Bible, they are never retired. Zion and Jerusalem become a, a shorthand way in the Bible of describing a world put right, where God's king sits on the throne and his people are blessed. And remarkably in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, referenced there on the, on the service sheet, we find that as Christians, we have already been brought to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, through Jesus Christ. And so spiritually, this is our new postcode. And yet, as we long for the day when our physical postcode matches our spiritual postcodes, we look forward with longing to the promise of Revelation 21. Life in God's new Jerusalem when God's eternal king sits on the throne and the world is once and for all put to right. 
It almost sounds too good to be true that one day our physical postcode will be in the new Jerusalem. It, it really will happen. We'll be beyond tears and mourning. It sounds almost too good to be true. But as we look back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, see how it helps us. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, see the real bricks and mortar of a real city. Hear the real taunts and jeers of a real enemy. Feel the real despair of 800 years of God's promises not being kept. And then imagine the real singing, the real songs of joy when the shout goes up, our king has secured the city. And one day that cry will be on our lips as we see a real physical city coming down to us, the new Jerusalem secured for us forever. We're seeing that God has a very good track record of securing his city for his people. He's done it once in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and he will do it again with the new Jerusalem when it comes. And so as Christians, we don't need to hedge our bets. We can place the whole lot, our whole lives, on his promise of a new creation. We can be generous with our money because we have a better prize coming. We can say no to that relationship, knowing that it's not what King Jesus would have of us. Even if it's full of pain and sadness now, knowing that one day we will see him face to face. We can happily exhaust ourselves for the sake of other people rather than living for our own comfort and pleasures because we know the best is yet to come. God's king secures his city. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is a wonderful moment in history, but even at this point, all is not well. I wonder if you noticed verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God gave very clear instructions that if a king were to come along, he must not take for himself many wives. And yet here is David taking for himself many wives. And in the list of sons, Read for us in verse 14, we, we read about Solomon. Solomon, there's a name that unlocks a story full of sin and shame, for he is the son of Bathsheba. Much more about her later on in our series. But the point is, even here at this wonderful moment, as God's king secures his city, we see that David is not a perfect man. He does much good, but we see the beginnings of his failure as he marries many wives. And so we are being shown that even in this wonderful moment, David is not the king who can secure our eternal city. He's a flawed and fallen man. But when the new Jerusalem comes and our true king sits in the throne, there'll be no unfaithfulness, no ifs, no buts, no falls, just eternity living under our perfect king. God's king secures his city. Second, God's king defeats his enemies. The news about uh, David's reign spreads quickly. And for his people, it's, it's really good news. 
But for his enemies, it's terrible news. And so verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. It's very clear the Philistines want to end David's reign almost as soon as it begins. And let's be in no doubt, this threat is real. Uh, For years now, the Philistines had been uh, terrorizing the people of God. They had come many times and they'd killed many people. And most recently, they had killed the previous king of Israel, Saul. And so as the Philistines march in again, this is no empty threat. I think if you were to play a word association game with an Israelite back in King David's time, and you asked them, what do you associate with this word? And then you said, Philistines. I'm sure they would have said, death. Because again and again, when the Philistines march into town, people die. And so imagine verse 18 looking out the window from the fortress of Jerusalem and seeing before you a sea of humanity spread out in the valley of Rephaim, knowing their sole intent was to kill you. But David, the man of God, inquired of God, verse 19, shall I go and attack? And the Lord said, go. And like water that bursts through a damn wall and breaks out and destroys everything in its path. So the Lord breaks out against the Philistines. And there's a wonderful victory. A little detail that I love in verse 21. As the Philistines encounter the raw power of the Lord breaking out against them, we are told that they abandoned their idols. And I guess that they must have headed into battle with their idols sort of under their arms, carrying their their gods with them, hoping that their gods would somehow bring them victory against the God of, of David. But they discover in the heat of battle that there's only one God who has true and uh, complete authority and power. And once they discover that, well, they do the obvious thing, they ditch their idols because they're worthless in the face of the Lord who breaks out against his enemies. But the war is not over. The Philistines regroup and try again. And again, the humble king inquires of the Lord. Verse 23. The first time, the Lord said, go, when David inquired of him. But this time, the Lord says the opposite. Stay, circle around behind the Philistines and wait until you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees. And what happens next is sort of spine tingling, isn't it? Because I take it that the noise that David heard in the tops of the trees wasn't just the wind rustling the leaves. No, it was the Lord himself marching out into battle to break out against the enemies of David and to win a wonderful victory. Yes, it was David who struck down the Philistines, but we know the victory belongs to the Lord. David is clearly God's king. He inquires of God, he submits to God, he obeys God. And as God's king, he defeats his enemies. It's hard to overstate the joy that must have been felt within the camp of Israel at this moment. I don't know, I guess um, perhaps this coming Tuesday, the 8th of May, which is 
the 73rd anniversary since the first VE Day celebrations in this country when Nazi Germany surrendered. I guess the cheers, the, the dancing, the hugs, the tears that we perhaps have seen pictures of on that first VE Day might take us close to what would have happened amongst the Israelites. The Philistines had come to kill, but God's king had won the victory. Again, what does this mean for us today? It is not, may I suggest, a manual to show us how we should fight God's enemies. We are not the king. We don't have the Philistines as our enemies. Rather, I think it helps us to understand something of the even bigger victory David's son, Jesus Christ, has won for us over our enemies. Just like David in these two battles, Jesus was consistently and completely obedient to his father, doing only what his father willed. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose to follow his father's will. He would defeat the enemies of God, God's way, the way of the cross. Colossians 2 puts it this way, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus, God's king, has defeated our enemies, not the Philistines, but our sin and all those who would try to use our sin to bring us down in condemnation. Every enemy totally and eternally defeated. And again, 2 Samuel 5, I think, helps us to feel something of the true joy of knowing that our enemies have been defeated. I've never been in a battle Thank God for that. I've never had to stand waiting in line for the attack to come, knowing that in front of me there are many enemies who are, who are there to try to kill me. There's a reason why those who have been in battle rarely talk about it, because it's just too horrible. And that is what 2 Samuel 5 would have been like. Imagine being a foot soldier in David's army. Imagine shaking with fear, knowing that before you were the mighty Philistines out to get you. Imagine knowing that your, your moment might come any second now, but then imagine hearing the cry going out across the army. The king has won. The battle's over. We've, we've taken the day. The Philistines are defeated. They're, they're in retreat. Imagine the joy, the thrill of knowing that day. Christian, take that joy and own it as your own. Knowing in Christ Jesus, God's eternal king has won an even greater victory for us. Our sins are defeated. Every power that would condemn us has been brought down. And in, two, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that even our last great enemy, death itself, has been defeated through the resurrection of our king, Jesus Christ. God's king defeats our enemies. And so Christians are people who believe the best is yet to come. Uh, yesterday, uh, Andy mentioned the, uh, the church away day. Uh, it was a wonderful day. The sun was out 
and uh, we were sort of able to bask in the glory of the sunshine and in the Peak District. And um, just a moment when we were sort of surrounded by a lovely church family just enjoying fellowship. And I, a little part of me thought, this would do, just about, with the sun and the views and the people. But then I was chatting with someone, they said to me, do you know, look, look around. The best is yet to come. And so whether we are um, given to uh, overly enjoying this life now, thinking there's nothing better to come, or whether we are those who are burdened by delays, difficulties, and death, remember the Lord has kept every single one of his promises throughout history so far, and he will go on keeping his promises until we gather around his throne, never to weep, or worry again. And so Christian, let us not hedge our bets. Instead, let us give ourselves completely to the service of the one true king, Jesus Christ, knowing that in him we will gain everything in the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your forgiveness tonight when we struggle to believe that the best is yet to come for us who trust in Christ. We thank you that your word is here to help us, to paint pictures for us, to show you how you work in history, to prepare us to go on believing that, yes, indeed, there will be a day when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven for us. So please help us to give ourselves wholly to the service of our King. In Jesus' name, amen.